Hey, Nick. Hey, Teddy. Do you remember Carmen? Oh, God. I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, a podcast where we explore artifacts from turn of the millennium Christian culture. Okay, Nick and our listeners, I want to welcome you to our first very special episode where witches, warlocks, demons, and goblins all make an appearance. Happy Halloween, the very best holiday in my opinion. And there's no better time than Halloween to talk about the Christian music artist, Carmen. Now, Nick, when I say there's no better time than Halloween to talk about Carmen, does that make sense to you? I think if so, it'll reveal how much you remember about him. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the first thought that comes to my mind when you say Carmen is the scariest songs of my childhood. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. I I have very vivid memories of dancing around music was was huge in my house growing up my dad uh you know has always been on church worship teams and things like that so like music was very important to him and so when we were young he would put on music and we'd spend time dancing in the living room together all of us uh together and i very vividly remember dancing to the song no monsters heck yeah classic yep uh, so like songs like No Monsters and like Witches Invitation. And I just remember a lot of like terrifying imagery in like his music videos and the music itself. Absolutely. And I love that you use the word terrifying because <laughs> I said I said this to this to you earlier. But now that we have settled into some episodes and people know what we're doing, I'm having more friends and even just, you know, kind of acquaintances comment on our podcast. And I have run into a couple different friends over the last few weeks. And they've asked me, what are you prepping right now for the podcast? And the conversations, I swear to God, have often gone like this. I'm prepping for our Carmen episode. Oh, he was scary. Now, these are all millennials, so do with that what you will, right, when it yeah. comes to anxiety. But, um, yeah, that's always the, the oh, he kind of freaked me out as a kid, or he was kind of scary, or, oh, my gosh, I had a hard time sleeping after listening to his song. You know, that was the formula, right? I couldn't listen to Witch's Invitation too close to bed, because if I did, I was just constantly terrified that either I'd be dragged to hell or... Uh, a witch would get me. So I had to listen to no monsters so that I would be, you know, protected by the Lord of hosts. Extremely, extremely reasonable um, order of, of songs, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So we've thrown around now. This is just starting to sound completely crazy, uh, which is invitation for the, for people who don't know Carmen <laughs> monsters, which is invitation. My goodness. So Suppose someone had never heard of Carmen. Suppose they were one of those people who haven't experienced the very rich blessing, you know, that Mm -hmm. is 1990s Christian music at all, let alone Carmen. How would you describe him to someone outside of our little culty word world here, if I might say? Yeah. (laughs) I there's a few words that come to mind when I think of Carmen, like sort of in his entirety rather than like in my memory specifically. The two words that I think describe him best are superstar. Perfect. Yeah. He's like this mega mythical figure in Christian music. His his career spans the 80s, 90s 
and 2000s. I mean, like right up until his death, he was headlining events pretty much. Um, And, you know, his music spans so many Christian sub genres. I wouldn't say it actually spans a lot of genre genres in the proper sense, but Mm -hmm. so many Christian sub genres, you know, a lot of like spoken word type songs, uh, which leads me to the other word that would describe him, which is showmanship. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I think of like the biggest names in music history, secular music history, I think of folks like, you know, like Elton John and uh, like ACDC and like these huge like displays that folks like Mm -hmm. that would put on for their concerts. And Carmen did that with everything in the most Christian way possible. Every music video was over the top for like 80s and 90s style. His concerts were stylized to the nth degree with pyrotechnics and videos and costumes. Yes. I remember going to a concert of his in 2001. The early time of 2001. It was like a time to go to a Carmen concert. It was pre 9-11. It was if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it was April. I was talking with my dad. So it was right as I turned 10. It was in Madison Square Garden. And it was this. Yeah, it was this like huge thing. I actually was in trying to figure out the exact timeline. Uh, I actually found a series of New York Post articles. Can Madison Square Garden actually fill with this guy that no one's heard of? Oh, my goodness. Followed immediately by, well, guess what? He filled Madison Square Garden. (laughs) It's pretty interesting to see that sequence. But yeah, like it was just full of pyrotechnics and and full of this like very melodramatic style of music. Mm -hmm. Um, And it ranged from these like gospel style sing-along worship songs to like again something resembling spoken word or um like pop music yeah the spoken word is actually something that didn't stick around in my memory when thinking about carmen and i have no idea why uh the other day i was actually playing uh, some of the songs for my nieces in the car and they were like he doesn't really sing no. And I turned to them and I said, you're right. He doesn't really say <laughs> I don't know why that didn't register. For, it just it wasn't a, a memorable like kind of characteristic of his music for me. I would have. But it really is unique. And we can talk more about this, about kind of like what made his work special. A lot. I would say like a very large portion of it when he's not doing praise songs. So the worship mm-hmm. song like already existed that he just does his own version to, which, by yeah. the way, he like constantly adds spoken word to those songs. Right. But his own work is a predominantly probably spoken word. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, even thinking about the song that I mentioned at the beginning, No Monsters, right? I, I re-listened to it recently. and. There's like a really catchy, danceable chorus and maybe like a bridge in there somewhere. But the majority of it is him like talking with a little bit of a rhythm. Yes, yes, absolutely. absolutely. It kind of reminds me a little bit of not to disparage one of our favorite genres, but mm. it reminds me a little bit of some of the old school folk music mm. and blues that like 
is sort of talking more than singing with music happening. I reject that comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to just act like you didn't say that. All right. So. um, (laughs) All right. But everything, everything else you've said is great, Nick. I'll, I'll accept everything else. So okay, that's uh, good. Keep that on the record. Some perfect words, some perfect phrases to describe him that I'm going to go back to. Some really basic biography. He was born. He was um, born in the 1950s, 1956. He hmm. did die in 2021. He is actually probably our only, I think, artist we've done so far who has passed on. So that's why I'm speaking. We're speaking about him in the past tense, obviously. He was born in New Jersey in 1956, died in the in in his 60s. He was the first CCM figure, I guess, actually the first major figure at all. That was a music singer, a songwriter, a television host, an evangelist, an entire personality (laughs) and an intentionally self-constructed Christian celebrity and showman, as you said. (laughs) So um, and I'll explain more of what that means in a bit. Also. He goes by the name Carmen, but would you uh, tell our audience, or I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, I'm sorry, could you pronounce his long, beautiful Italian name for us? Oh, it is a gorgeous Italian name. (laughs) I uh, get, as having not as Italian of a name as this, even. Yeah, no, uh, this wins. Yeah. uh, I I completely understand why he dropped it all for just Carmen. Just Carmen. his full name is Carmelo Dominic Licciardello. Beautiful. Love it. From the mid 1990s to only a year before he died in 2020, which you res- referenced this, he was mild. He was mildly. He was wildly successful. He won seven Dove Awards and was nominated for four Grammys. He sold 30 million a- albums. He had concerts with literally 81,000 people in attendance. Numerous obituaries actually noted that he set the world record for the largest Christian concert, but I couldn't actually confirm this. Interesting. So, yeah. I mean, the fact that he attracted this, you know, claim is interesting in and of itself, whether or not it's true. I, I'm not entirely sure. Moral of the story is that he was a big figure with a really big following. Also, I think when we can talk about this a little more connects to the mythology of him as a figure, right? Like the persona of who he is and all that, that comes with that. So we, we can get there, but I just wanted to like put that pin in. Perfectly said. Yeah. So I think in this episode, what I would like to explore is what made Carmen such a success. And in order to answer that, we have to talk about the things that actually made him pretty weird. Features that made him both a kind of quintessential representation of 1990s Christian music and also simultaneously very unique. So probably the best way of saying it is that he took a lot of the traits, anxieties, concerns, and just the general affect of Christianity of the time. And he completely inflated these things to Mm -hmm. their like most extreme, the most extreme version of themselves. Let's talk about what that looks like. So in 19 in the 1980s to 1990s, we've talked about this a little bit. Christian music was just beginning to really, really explode. And the concept of a highly popularized Christian artist was emerging. Right. Carmen completely tapped into this new phenomenon, but he arguably did it far more than most Christian artists of the time. He was a showman. 
He didn't try to hide it. He carved out an identity for himself as this kind of Christian celebrity. And while there was nothing, there's certainly nothing secular about the music itself, right? I will get mm-hmm. to that. It's outrageously and ridiculously Christian. He's also clearly drawing on some really familiar traits of the showman in just the secular world mm-hmm. at large. Yeah, I think putting him in line with other figures that we've discussed around the same time, like your Amy Grants and your Michael W. Smith, right? Like, yeah. no doubt Michael W. Smith puts on a good show. I've been to a Michael W. Smith concert. Like, he does. Hey. Yeah. And, and so does Amy Grant. But both of their uh, fame, their persona was sort of built on this. The Christian word that comes to mind is like their meekness. Mm, you know, yes. like Amy Grant's early persona, even though she became this weirdly rebellious figure, like we've discussed, she's very much the meek, feminine expectation for most Christians. And Michael W. Smith was this sort of soft man, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He had this uh, persona of like the worshipful, uh, uh, humble person. The persona that Carmen puts on is like all caps charisma. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. And there's too, I think, a difference between the showman and the show, right? Because like you perfectly said, those people still put on a show. I remember being at a Michael W. Smith concert and when he played above all on the piano, like rose petals fell because there's a line about like being a rose trampled on the ground or whatever. Obviously entertaining, obviously knew what he was doing, obviously trying to pull in the audience. But I don't think it's in the same. I think he was putting on a show where he was sort of facilitating this production. I think Carmen was more so the production himself. That's really a great way to put that. I, I think I, th- I think that would be my, my thesis yeah. here. <laughs> well, like I was just saying before, you know, the idea of the mythology of the man, I, I was trying to draw another parallel. And I think a closer parallel is actually like Stephen Curtis Chapman, mm. because Stephen Curtis Chapman has a lot of antics in his music. There's a lot of like showmanship in some of the things that he does. He's like flipping through genres throughout his career. Um, But he's got this down home Tennessee family man persona. Totally. Whereas Carmen is explosive. I, I, um, did he ever marry Carmen? You know, I can I can fact check this, but I'm nearly certain I read that he married much, much later in life, like mm. maybe in his 50s or 60s. To be to be honest, kind of sad, not not too long before he died. Yeah, I know he had uh, like a struggle with cancer for a few years, um, but I know that like his his passing was fairly sudden aside from like like the announcement and then like a, that he had cancer sort of publicly and then he died like a year later but what i was uh in the comparison i was making is like there's that family man down home americana feel for stephen curtis chapman where pardon the weird phrasing on this but carmen kind of represented an white ethnicity yes that makes sense like an ethnic but in a very white way yes well italian Yeah. yeah Yeah, an Italian showman. It's yeah. it's totally what he's channeling there. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, I think Christian music artists, especially at this time, 
we're trapped. They're always trapped in this, but because it was still emerging, we're still working through all of this. They were kind of trapped in this weird paradox where on one hand, they need to release a marketable and catchy music. And we know on one hand, that's dependent on the quality of the music itself, but also kind of the product that is the person, him or herself, right? Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, the whole point of the music is also to embody some of those values of like modesty, separateness from the world, um, you know, kind of selflessness. So Christian artists are put in this weird position where they on one hand need to aspire to be celebrities just in order to make the whole thing work. But it also kind of feels antithetical to the greater mission of being apart from the world and ha- and producing music that ultimately points the listener towards Christ rather than to the person, him or herself. What's interesting about Carmen, though, in my opinion, is that the paradox doesn't seem to be as apparent in that he kind of fully embraces pretty unapologetically the notion of the Christian celebrity. And it works. I don't know if everyone could pull it off, but it works for him. It does work for him. He reminds me in some ways of like the televangelist archetype in that, like, there are some people who feel obviously fraudulent in what they're doing. Mm, Yeah. Um, However, there are some people who are charismatic enough, who are enough of a personality to be able to capitalize on the model and make it usable. I think we are very quick at this stage in the history of Christianity to see a televangelist or a megachurch pastor and say, well, yeah, obviously they're a fraud. They're a megachurch pastor. But like something we're going to get into in future episodes, hopefully, is there's a lot of these personalities who were able to make that work for them, who were able to create this uh, facade of authenticity uh, in the archetype itself and make it work. And and that actually brings me to a question that I've had in thinking about Carmen, which is, do you have any thoughts on how sincere he was in his public persona and his music for that matter? Yeah, that's a tough one. I've been pondering the same thing as I've watched these super theatrical revival services or not even services, concerts that he does and trying to kind of tap into, you know, he's clearly trying to tap into people's emotions, just like all the Christian music did. And he's trying to lead to some kind of like spiritual revival outcome. But yet he still utterly centers himself in that process. So it kind of puts the former thing then a little bit into question uh, in terms of sincerity. But I don't know. I sort of feel like on some level, he he balances both somehow Mm. in a way that actually does feel pretty earnest and real as real as, you know, ushering demons out of whatever, all of that. Right. But, you know, when when little (laughs) Nikki went to his exorcism in college, he was earnest. You know, right, right, right. Like you can be earnest about this stuff and it's still ridiculous or feels (laughs) ridiculous now. Right. We might go so far to say that we were a bit too earnest. I think that would be a fair that would be a fair assessment. Fair (laughs) and balanced. Yes. But 
I didn't listen to Carmen at the time. I didn't know anyone who listened to Carmen at the time who was like, oh, my God, this guy's, you know, he's he's so showy. He's problematic. He's not that they would have used that word back then. I can think of other artists and I can think of televangelists, like you said, who were always a bit suspect. Right. Mm -hmm. And that people sort of pondered the their sincerity or their intentions or how much they were actually quote in it for the Lord. But I don't remember that. I don't remember Carmen attracting that kind of discourse. No, I I agree with you. I, I don't remember that either. I think the closest to any commentary on his authenticity that I remember was somebody telling me, calling him playful. Mm, yeah, a lot of his stuff does have that playful feel, but it's never insincere and it's never not serious. Like he's playful about being serious. Yes. And that's actually a part of what I was. You're kind of stealing my thunder here. That's exactly mm. I was going to say almost those exact exact phrase in terms of we'll, we'll get to it. His seriousness and whether or not he wants us to take him seriously is the question. So if you can, we like just sort of, you know, shelf that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Pain I, I want to get I want to get to it, but you you beat me to the punch. So I'm so sorry. So some ways that Carmen let's talk through just so in case there are listeners who simply don't even really know who Carmen is. Let's talk through the ways he did construct himself as a Christian celebrity. Probably first and foremost is just the name. Right. So he's a one man showman, not a band or a group. He gives off, it kind of gives off the vibe of like a Madonna or a Cher, you know, he is the product. He is the art. He is the music. He is, he's the entire show. His concerts were often titled things like Carmen, the experience, <laughs> or this was the most recent one, actually, before he died. Carmen Live, a cinnamon sonic experience, cinema sonic experience. That's hard to say. It's him. He is, he's the show, nothing else. Well, and that tracks with like his music videos that we rewatched for this, right? He is the like main character always in all those videos. I think the concert series that I, the concert that I went to was in the series, Carmen, Heart of a Champion. Yeah. Yeah. So yet again, though, his name is sort of front and center there. Okay. So we have the name and then aesthetics. So we haven't often commented on the physical, the literal kind of physical presentation of many of, of these artists. And I think that's for a good thing, other than saying that, like, they're, they're predominantly kind of white, semi-attractive because that's, it's a market. But there's something unique about Carmen's sort of physical presentation. So I have sent you two photos that I would like you to look at. Um, there are loads of pictures of Carmen throughout the internet. So feel free to do a Google search for more. But I think these two best encapsulate what I'm trying to get out here. Can you describe them to the audience and give your reactions to the two photographs? These are, by the way, like these were put out to market his his albums at the time. Carmen is, as we've mentioned, he's very Italian. So he's the kind of man who has eyebrows for day eyebrows and forehead and hair for days uh <laughs> he's got like that widow's peak that's in older italian men and and definitely looking into my future here it's terrifying if you're looking into the future i hope you're this rich you know <laughs> that'd like... be great <laughs> and so in the first photo we have him laying on his stomach on a bed with white oh, yeah. sheets he has his shoes on which are 
killing me. I hate shoes on the bed, but they're noticeably like sneakers. They're black and white sneakers. And he's wearing a pair of black jeans or jean like dress pants. Mm -hmm. And his jacket looks like it's some fake leather, faux leather. Yeah. He's wearing a white button down shirt with a black tie. A very nice watch. Very nice watch. Yeah. This is a nice, these are nice clothes. You can yeah, tell. No, no, it's not. Yeah. This isn't ratty in any way. These are just like, it's very strange. It, it's like he's trying to do formal with all casual pieces. Hmm. Yeah. Is the best way that I can describe that. Um, and he's, you know, got an eyebrow up and he's leaning on his fist with a single finger extended. And uh, not that finger, you know, the appropriate ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and just this charming little, Almost come hither smile. Almost. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. Do do we want to share our our um multiverse theory of oh, where he's Carl- definitely a porn actor in another universe? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sorry. It just it's he did this, you know, he asked for this <laughs> critique. Like I, he did this to himself. It's there. It's sprawled across the bed in his fancy outfit and that smirk, that flirtatious smirk. All of his photos, by the way, a lot of his photos. Mm-hmm have a very flirtatious sort of flair to them more than other Christian artists. It feels to me like the photo representation of when Christian artists don't quite know that they're making like a dick joke accidentally or they're (laughs) making like a sexual reference and they don't quite get it. So they keep doing it sincerely that's what all his photos remind me of is like he's accidentally smoldering. And that's a, that's a good way to describe the second picture is he is smoldering in this picture. Yes. OK, so the second photo, the Holy second photo shit. is he's standing in a uh, like leaning to the side on something we don't really quite see. Uh, he's wearing a pinstripe jacket with a white shirt buttoned down. Way too many buttons down. I was going to say, this uh, is not buttoned all the way. <laughs> no, I mean, let's put it this way. From the hem of his pants, the top hem of his pants, yes. to the opened button, there are two buttons buttoned. And there are three more buttons that are unbuttoned. So we have more unbuttoned than buttoned. I've said button too many times. <laughs> In this one, it's much softer warmer light very yellow as opposed to the stark white of the other photo yeah he's almost on some sort of like rooftop uh, overlooking a city yeah 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 in the first one he's giving the camera he's giving us the viewer those come hither eyes here he's staring off to uh the left of the picture and in a very like pensive like i kind of want him to drop the one more thing, you know, Perry Mason style line here. Right. He's he's for sure smoldering at something off screen uh, before he gets the drop on the villains. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Great descriptions. I hope that our I hope that our listeners are able to picture all of that. Um, he seems like these seem like they could be photos on like a sexy man calendar of the time. You know, that is like the oh, look yeah. it feels like he's going for. I uh, I was reading some analyses of of Carmen's physical presentation, the way he presented himself, especially analyses that came out after he died. I love this one blog entry um, by a critic, a film and a music critic, Tyler Huckabee. 
in ranking Carmen's music videos by badassness. Great title. Oh I thought he just, said this. <laughs> he just says this so perfectly. He goes, quote, it's impossible to look at his body of work and not conclude that being a Christian or pop spoken word star wasn't a bit of a vanity project for Carmen. <laughs> you know, this was in reference to him often being featured alone, that he's the center of attention. He's often posing like model. He's often impeccably dressed. The dress seems intentionally, intentionally um, giving off vibes of, I, w- I would say, wealth or, mm-hmm. or prestige or, or something. Status you know, even, at the very least. Status is the better word. Yes. Even, you know, you had made the comment about the weird fusion of like the casual and the formal. But those sneakers look very expensive. The watch is like glistening on his wrist. You know, it just. And then the skyscrapers, it just all feels very like this is a suave guy with money or something, which is just so different for Christian music artists of the time. Aesthetics aside, there's this entire persona that he establishes. Nick, I asked you to watch the music video prior to this. Satan bite the dust. That is the name of the song. It's from 1993. There's going to be a lot to unpack here. There's so much we could say about Satan Bite the Dust. But what I was most hoping that maybe you could give your reaction to is how Carmen himself is represented in that music video. How he functions, the kind of character he's playing, um, who he is in the music video, how he situates himself and presents himself. Because it's really reflective of how he is in honestly all of his music videos. So who is Carmen in Satan Bite the Dust? I love that. I love the question, the way you framed that question, because he's always playing a character, even when it's just himself. It's just a different iteration of himself. Everything always is Carmen doing X. Yes, it gives me like a I hate to bring this guy up but it gives me like a woody allen sort of feel that he's like playing a bunch of different characters but you're always woody allen carmen is always carmen you know is always carmen yeah so satan bite the dust is a cowboy themed song promising already yeah i know my gosh 1993 christian cowboy white italian christian cowboy he's still my heart (laughs) i know right like gosh uh, he rolls into this town and I say town. The setting is a bar, like a, a saloon. The most we get of the town is he ties up his horse improperly outside um, and walks in and then starts calling out Satan and demons who are presumably at the bar. Yeah, they're all just chilling at this bar. Yeah. Uh, okay. Satan and his posse are hanging out. Actually, notably, Satan needs to be summoned, but we'll get to that. <laughs> who Carmen is. In Satan Bite the Dust is very clean cut, very, um, again, wealth is really kind of in this. Like he's wearing clean clothes. He's the only person in the music video that's wearing clean clothes. Yeah. Even the it's other like a humans. White button down, right? I was just going to say it's a yeah. white button down yeah. with like the classic, like cowboy thin bow tie. Yeah. And a long black trench coat. Um, that is like a suit jacket up top. Like it looks like this thing was custom made. It doesn't quite look right. It looks right. adjacent to correct. I know. <laughs> it's 
fascinating to me. This, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember if he wears a hat. Yeah, he's wearing like this cowboy mm-hmm. hat. Again, black goes with this uh, jacket. He's carrying guns. In that review you mentioned, where it calls him a badass, like different levels of badass, that kind of caricatured Christian masculinity is all over the place in every one of his videos. Mm-hmm. Here he is, the macho man who's come to clean up this here town. And by this here town, he means the world? Yeah, I think so. I think that bar is representative of the entire world that is infested with spiritual darkness. Right. And so, like, he has a line in there. I've been authorized and deputized to blow you clean away. (laughs) Which, again, multiverse. It's so good. Yep. He knows exactly what to do. But, yeah. He's this like hyper masculine uh, lip syncing because he's always lip syncing in all of his videos. Yes. Like, obviously. And I don't know if that's just 90s music video culture more than him. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. But yeah, so that's sort of his persona. And he kicks in the door and he starts calling out the demons, which always look very similar in Carmen videos. Yeah, like kind of Sesame Street characters or something Mm -hmm. like. Yeah. We can get to that, what the demons look like, but that perfectly said, you know, so he is a character in all of these music videos. He is himself, but he's a very specific kind of man. And it's someone who I kept thinking of you as I was thinking, you know, as I was processing this, because there's just so much to say about a kind of model of masculinity that he's putting forth here. Mm -hmm. Someone who literally fights off demons and satan himself and he does that in a way that's like a combination of smooth masculine he uses violence when necessary he's a bit gruff but still suave he's usually in the role of like saving the day or at least being i guess the better more christian way of saying it is like he's the primary vehicle through which god can like conquer evil right yeah yeah no i i noticed that in a few different of his music videos. And, and, you know, as I go back through all of it, I'm thinking about like even the heart of a champion song, right? The whole theme of that album Mm -hmm. is I am the vehicle for God, the action of God. And in the music video, I remember that vividly. The whole theme of that music video is a boxing match. Mm -hmm. And he plays the Christ figure who gets knocked down for a three count. Ha ha ha. Clever. (laughs) and gets back up and defeats the satan character i like that you say he uses violence when necessary because there's this sort of dissonance between his messaging which is like oh violence on tv is a bad thing for children to be exposed to but then like he literally shoots satan in the face yeah yeah there are actual guns i mean i don't know if they're real literal guns that work but they are he I don't know how many music videos feature the Christian artist, him or herself, whipping out a lit- what is supposed to be a literal gun and shooting someone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't know, but like so strange. Um, many critics after his death, I found this in a lot of the, you know, sort of um, obituaries and analyses. Many critics after his death commented that he was almost like an Italian Christian Clint Eastwood or James mm. Bond or like William Wallace, like Jan, uh, John Wayne. 
Yes. Yes. That it's not actually an entire, it's not an original trope. It is a trope, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that he's using over and over again. And although his message is, I think his message, especially in this era is telling all of us, no matter who you are, if you're a child, if you're elderly, you know, wherever you are in the world, you have the power within you to fight spiritual darkness. You and Mm -hmm. you alone can take down the demons, right. That are supposedly everywhere. But yet he doesn't actually feature spiritual darkness being conquered in like very diverse ways. It's always him as the kind of superhero in the moment or the action guy in the, you know, it's not because he could very easily have shown really been quite, I don't know, diverse in his narrative, showing lots of different people conquering spiritual darkness or fighting spiritual, doing spiritual warfare. But it's really just the same story over and over again. Oh, absolutely. And to like offer just a little bit of like a spin of the gem in what you're saying here, it's not even diversity in the sense of like, oh, he could have a black person or an indigenous oh, no, person. I wasn't even going that far. <laughs> it's, yeah, no, we don't even need to go that. Just other people, like right. anyone, anyone else, because right. all of them are Carmen being victorious for some reason over a dark force. Yes very centering of like you said the masculine presence but also and i think this might be part of his appeal centering the self the individual right mm-hmm. because the, the the overall effect of carmen being the protagonist appointed by god in every one of his videos is the very 21st late 20th 21st century capitalist I am the one who pulled myself up on my spiritual bootstraps and I vanquished this enemy that's trying to attack me. And that fits into the John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, William Wallace vein. Like even visually, there's a lot of similarities between Carmen and Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, if you think about the roles they filled in the Christian sphere, they're Mm -hmm. very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of this is definitely a book we're going to do in a future season, but Wild at Heart. The foundation of that book is not scripture, it's Braveheart. Yeah. The yeah. opening text of that book is a quote from Braveheart. Mm-hmm. And the entirety of the masculine model that's laid out is on this idea of, you know, vanquishing the enemy as a masculine force. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's, you know, similar to, I think, um, Carmen and some of the other examples we've given is that there is also the assumption that this is going to be this narrative of the kind of masculine, you know, protagonist conquering evil, that although it's something that like men probably specifically will aspire to, it's also a narrative that's supposedly going to be enjoyed and consumed by everyone that we're all We're all in need of this hero. We all enjoy this hero. Like, I don't think, I guess my point is, I don't think Carmen was necessarily intentionally marketing himself or even trying to put forth an image of like, I'm specifically going to be for a male audience and I'm going to specifically inspire young men. I think it's a recycling of a supposedly universal narrative that just we all love Mm. to to entertain. I I think that's really astute. And without, falling down the gender trope rabbit hole too yeah, far I know. This could be forever yeah oh my gosh we did the entire episode on this but when we talked about rebecca st james she was 
particularly a woman's artist and she was marketing the purity message to women and young girls and all that like i think part of the masculine this masculine trope is that the masculine figure is a leader of all yes whereas the feminine figure the feminine trope is a good model for all women yes yes that's exactly right. That's exactly what I was trying to get at. Perfect. Okay. I, I think that pretty much covers it. I, I just really wanted to lay the foundation of Carmen as not just another Christian music artist, but someone who was specifically a Christian music celebrity and was doing that and constructing that self relatively unapologetically. All right. So my second major point is that And we touched on this already, but Carmen had his own musical style and didn't really try to compete with the sounds or styles of popular contemporary Christian music. His songs were often very long, four to seven minutes, maybe elaborate stories that were commonly more spoken word uh, format. He didn't do a ton of singing, like we said, something I had forgotten about. They often involved acting out the stories that were taking place, which seems obvious. But I say that to emphasize that when he references demons, Satan, people dragging, you know, beings dragging people to hell, he literally gets people or whatever he did to dress up (laughs) as those characters in the music videos. How would you describe them? They're sort of like these mini movies or like short films mm-hmm. where he's got music instead of like dialogue and things like that. Like particularly in the one that we're going to talk about, there is another character, but all of that character's lines are sung by Carmen in the VO. Right. Right. Yeah. There's no, yeah, that person doesn't actually have any lines and there's uh, quite an incredible amount of special effects Nothing, like you said, is said that isn't also presented right mm-hmm. in physical form, which is really interesting because there's like this level at which like more modern or contemporary or secular videos will do this thing where they're telling a story, but then they'll have some sort of like metaphor or like something connected to deepen what's happening. Mm-hmm. That's not happening here. It's very literalist. Yes, yes. And the special effects are, I, is this fair to say, bad? Um, <laughs> They're I, certainly know, bad I, by today's I, standards, but I don't know I'm how bad they that. are compared to 90s. I mean... I don't know, because on one hand, I'm like watching this going, this is so bad, but it's the 90s. But then I'm also like, so is Titanic. I guess that's yeah. not a fair comparison. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. It just seems like some it's just some are just so utterly cheesy and Mm -hmm. listeners i would urge you if you have six minutes take your lunch break and watch some of these because they're pretty funny actually they are we've talked about christian artists attempting to kind of wrap the christian message in something that would be palpable to the secular world whether it be like the boy band or the girl band or you know the kind of like edgier rock band it's clear that a lot of Christian music art, music artists were trying to take what was at least somewhat trendy in the secular world and essentially, quote, make it Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And Carmen himself actually said in an interview that he he was trying to make his music, quote, palpable, something everyone could relate to, end quote. <laughs> and maybe you don't remember that, when you, mean, you got your letter inviting you to. Oh, my God, this is about Hogwarts. <laughs> we both had that revelation at the same time. <laughs> And like, Nick, actually, though, imagine if you got a letter from a witch. I mean, in the millennial imagination, that only means one thing. It only Hogwarts. means one thing. It only <laughs> means one thing. No, but like, for for real, I, I, I get what he's saying in that interview that he's trying to make things relatable. And if you asked, like, my parents or people of my parents' generation or my grandparents, they would talk about how he's playing out these spiritual fantasies for lack of a better phrase like this is what people who call themselves prayer warriors actually think is happening on a spiritual level so he's not being any more literalist or any more um fantastical than other people are being in their day-to-day imaginations i mean we're going to talk about which is an invitation in a second and go through it. This is not that far from the way you hear conservative Christian talking points about what's threatening their children. That's very fair. And, you know, honestly, I just sort of had an attitude. I think perspective check, attitude check, thinking about this now, you know, I kind of scoffed at that at first. Like he actually thinks this is like power, you know, palpable and something everybody can relate to. But, you know, my distance from the church has now made me less likely to remember just how much this sort of stuff, for lack of better words, was reality, Mm. if if that makes sense. So when he says something we can relate to, that is actually a genuine assessment of reality as Christians knew it at the time. I remember being in a prayer group where someone genuinely brought the concern forth that a a music box had a demonic force in it and this was received earnestly seriously we prayed about it so given that like i said the distance has now afforded me like this kind of skepticism of like how in the world would anybody think this is relatable it actually was probably yeah and and i would say again you know going back to his ubiquity in like early CCM culture, he's doing something different from what Christian music became in that he's trying to sing to Christians to encourage Christians in what they're already doing. He's Mm -hmm. not necessarily calling anyone forward to action or into Uh, any sort of change like DC Talk, right? It's about changing your perspective and about being something particular. It's a call for identification in relation to the world. And Carmen's not putting any of his call to action or any of his relatability or Christian identity in contrast to anything. He's just, no, no, no. This is the Christian world. I'm singing to you in the Christian world about the Christian world. No relation to anything else. No relation to the outside world. That's exactly right. And I also think that his music, at least in my you know, assessment, I don't think his music is attempting to bridge some kind of gap between the Christian world and the secular world. I don't think it's trying to like bring in 
the people, you know, like in the way that plus one is trying to bring in the in-sync listeners, right? I don't think Carmen's trying to do that here. Or if he is, I have no idea what music, you know, <laughs> what listeners he's trying to market to. I, I see, unlike other CCM artists, I think of, of the time, I see him as pretty unapologetic in this really just completely outrageous Christian narrative, mm-hmm. not trying to appeal to a world at large, speaking to the Christians who are already there, who have already signed on, who are already like, I am with you on this narrative about mm-hmm. spiritual darkness. They're already in, you know, there's yeah. no trying to appease anyone. Yeah, I don't see this as like converting people, right? Like, no one's, I'm sure this has happened. And I really want to hear your story, listener. If this is your story, please tell me, please email (laughs) us. Oh, God, I forgot dot pod at gmail.com. Please send us this story. But I don't think anybody's giving witches invitation to their D&D playing nephew or niece to convert (laughs) them. Right. Right. Because like. Like we're we're gonna get to it, people. But like that, I like if you're worried that someone's going to be in the occult, you're not giving them which is invitation to dissuade them, but which is invitation might make strengthen your resolve to pray for them and and mm. and believe that these things are corrupting them. Sure, and I think that that idea of like resolve being strengthened as his goal rather than conversion or change is a good distinction. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I had in my notes, you know, we sort of already touched on, but I think it's important to know too, that although they are in many ways ridiculous, there is an earnestness that's worth acknowledging and exploring, you know, in some ways, Carmen's, especially the music videos, I think they're simultaneously not taking themselves seriously, yet also taking themselves like sickly seriously. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and the response, at least from my memory, um, the response to it was serious. If you look at concert clips, people are deeply moved by the content. If you read through like the YouTube comments on a lot of these music videos, people are saying this material got them through some really dark times in their lives. For many years when I was in the church, totally outing myself here, his songs would consistently give me goosebumps no matter how many times I heard them. They would often make me cry, not sad tears, more like that weird genre of tears that are like patriotic songs. Like I'm deeply moved and touched and inspired by this. And I I can't even handle all my emotion, right? Like (laughs) that type of crying consistently his music Mm. would. Yeah. And I don't remember myself or anyone else being skeptical or, or suspicious of the seriousness of the songs. Never, ever. No. Uh, I think that's this really interesting, this really interesting approach to your own messaging, right? One's own messaging that followed me kind of through uh, into adulthood. You know, we've talked about these things that are rumbling in the background. I remember when I first started getting into uh, music from other countries, there was this uh, Finnish group that I really liked that they were like, you know, they were a fantasy themed band. They were over the top. And I remember mm-hmm. somebody asked me what I liked. And so I told them about this band and they watched their music videos and they're just these terrible, like people playing cause doing cosplay in front of like green screens and oh, just so over the top. And this person was like, dude, these are ridiculous. 
And I was like, no, they're awesome. I swear they're awesome. And like, I, they're ridiculous. But that's right. part of the charm. Yeah. Is their ridiculousness. Yeah. Being earnest about that thing, whatever that thing is, in spite of the ridiculousness, instead of because of the ridiculousness. Mm, yeah. A really just- interesting oh. distinction. I, I just I think that that's something that weirdly followed me in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I will say that in a lot of the obituary, not maybe the obituaries, but a lot of the like uh, commentary that was birthed after his death did reference the sort of absurdity that mm-hmm. was always common. I don't know if that is. And these were people who loved him who were saying this. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You know, we're talking now 2021. I don't know if like with two decades worth of time exposure to other more sophisticated, you know, Christian music, if, if that perspective then sort of became a bit more, more present, the, mm. you know, or if his absurdities became a bit more apparent, but even if they were recognized, which I'm not even, I'm not even entirely sure that they were, but even if they were recognized, it was like, they, that's part of what made the music and him, enjoyable it's part of it was like not in spite of right it was mm-hmm. like because of it but it on the level that when it was conscious which i don't even think it always was but. yeah no and and again like let's put this in context we're talking about the late 80s early 90s everything was ridiculous and have you ever watched a power rangers episode from the mid 90s yeah. like holy moses like it's all over the top it's just it's it's a couple decades of hyperbole and opulence and absurdity being in fashion. Yeah, that's fair. A lot, a lot of, you know, if you were to consult with or look at a lot of media of the time, it's all kind of excessive, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's in that sense, Carmen is is not a anomaly, but um, I still think within though CCM broadly, he is. On that note, my one of my final areas of interest with Carmen is how he tapped into all of the anxieties and concerns of fundamentalist Christianity of the time. And it was never subtle. You know, he did it explicitly. He did it intensely, nearly aggressively. (laughs) He tapped into all of the emotions in this era and he just brought them to, you know, their most extreme final conclusion. I think it's best exemplified, probably, in which is an invitation. Um, That is a 1993 song that tells a story about, I'm just going to give background. So it's about a man who, for whatever reason, receives a letter from a local, quote, male witch. Uh, The witch wants him to come to his house to fight him. challenge him it's it's not clear entirely um it's basically like you're a christian come to my house like Mm -hmm. i could practice more summary skills here and tell the listeners the story but i think in order to do it justice if it's okay with you it would actually be quite fun to read the lyrics of the song it's a story after all so it kind of just needs to be told rather than summarized are you do do you consent i consent to read um i definitely want to read through this I'll do my best uh, Carmen impression as we go oh, through God. that. Okay. Uh, so 
I want all of our listeners, as you hear these lyrics, I want you to imagine, you know, Carmen's rich, booming voice, which no doubt Nick will model better than me, and a completely overly spectacular nightmare on Elm Street type of scene. Okay. So this is 1993, which is invitation from Carmen. You have to hear the initial. <laughs> it starts with like a little flourish of like fairy tale yeah. sounds. Yeah, yeah. It's quite charming. One peaceful afternoon, I picked up from my oh mailbox my the strangest looking letter I'd ever seen. A chilling little envelope bordered with flying bats and eerie serpents whose eyes were tinted green. The letter was addressed to me, so as I opened it, I froze. Turned my complexion three shades of blue. It said, my name is Isaac Horowitz. I'm a male witch, a warlock. I feel I need to spend some time with you. Okay, can we just pause and talk about the casual anti-Semitism by naming this guy Horowitz? I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And I will say, I just want to add that in the music video as well, this is so clear. This moment, I think, so clearly establishes our character of Carmen as the clean cut, you know, sort of suave, um, you know, Christian man. Right. Like he's standing outside this very like kind of um, what's the word? Quaint uh, little oh, house. Yeah. Literally yeah, yeah. a white picket fence. Literally a white picket fence, a cute little mailbox that he takes his card. I love the two that talk about establishing the character. The letter just says Carmen <laughs> on the on the envelope. <laughs> it's yeah, the, the it says Carmen on it. It's great. And then the the letter that is written to Carmen and his address is seventy seven Righteous Road. Sunnyville, USA. Oh my god! And the zip code is seven 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 seven. The biblical numbers. I'm loving it. And doesn't the, also the mailbox just say Carmen? Yes. Am I imagining it? Yeah. No, okay. no, no. The mailbox just says Carmen. It's a little college cottage with a white picket fence. His mailbox says Carmen, all lowercase letters, which is really interesting. And he's wearing this almost white, very light heather gray linen suit with that. Classic white button down shirt with too many buttons undone. Mm -hmm. Just enough of that chest hair to remind us how much of a man he is. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. So he gets his letter. The, he gets the witch's invitation. Then he says, now as a Christian from a little church with God's call on my life, a man of faith and power with a challenge to grow. I did what any saint would do in my situation. I tore it up and said, Lord, there's no way I'm going to go. Then gently and methodically, the Holy Spirit spoke and reminded me, where's God's voice to our nation? It's the church's responsibility to witness. So reluctantly, I accepted this witch's invitation. Can we just like comment on how witches and warlocks are the same number of syllables? <laughs> like he could have said warlocks invitation. I know. Why did he do that? It's actually really fascinating to fall down the gendered rabbit hole that he calls Isaac a male witch. I know. I thought that was strange, too. I, I don't really know what's being done there. Like, obviously, I, I don't think he had very complicated thoughts about it. I'm just trying to understand it 
you know, from the humanities gender studies perspective that we have. I, I guess any opportunity, you know, historically anyway, to throw women under the bus just one more time, it, sure. it feels, yeah, let's just do that. Yeah. So, yeah. In this section that you're reading, that you just read here, he says he's a Christian from a, like, he's just a hometown boy from a little church. <laughs> God's call him out. A man yep. of faith and power, again, machismo, mm -hmm. with a challenge to grow. I did what would be expected of me. I didn't do anything. Like I rejected this, like all that leading up to it kind of makes you feel like what any saint would do is like be confrontational. I don't know. Maybe looking at this from 2022 uh, makes me think any Christian who got challenged to a duel would run at it. Very Don Quixote, right? Like we're. Yeah. In some ways, though, it's more powerful, right? That he at first is reluctant and then finds the sort of whatever it is one needs to go and confront a demon. Um, it feels like that's a nice little. Uh, so no, no one's, you know, no one's always strong and no one's always brave, but you got to do it anyway. I remember mm. that language kind of yeah. that, you know, the point isn't to go in to a con confrontation with spiritual darkness, fearless. The, the point is to just go in regardless. Right. Uh, connected to that is like that relatability that he wants, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like yeah. these are all things that I would say of myself is I have a call of, of God on my life. I'm, I'm a man or a woman of faith, you know, uh, might not be so full of hubris to say a man of power, you know, mm -hmm. but like all of those things are, are really like uh, triggers that we can identify with. Can I just say, too, that in today's world, I feel like the contemporary version of this is you get like an anonymous text that goes to your unknown folder, your unknown yeah. <laughs> contacts folder, and you open it up and it's like, hey, I'm eyes. Text me back when you get this. Where and then you we at? leave them on red. <laughs> you up. This is Isaac. Right. Wait, what is it? What's the uh, W.Y.D.? What you doing? What, what you doing? <laughs> I had to leave them on red and say, oh, my God, I was just so busy. I'm so sorry I didn't get back to you. I haven't looked at my phone all day. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. I'll continue with this. Um, he had the house you'd expect. The old English cottage, a nightmare on Elm Street special right to the core. The overgrown ivy, the gate that creaked when opened. Somehow you'd expect Freddie to answer this door. Doubling down on the weird nightmare on Elm Street imagery. I know. I know. The doorbell rang with a hollow gong. A knob twisted, then opened, and Isaac stood before me with a grin. His jet black hair and well-trimmed beard flowed with silk, sorry, with his black silk clothes. My skin crawled as he said, please come in. I said this to you when I first watched it uh, again. This house is nice. Yeah, it's not my decor choice, but I can totally see why you say that. Well, he, he, not even the decor, not like not even necessarily that, like just like, I don't know, as a millennial who doesn't own a house and has no possible prospects of owning a house. The fact that this dude has like this, not, it's, I don't think it's a cottage. I think it's actually more like in the like, um, what's it called? Um, like Victorian style, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought, too. And on a one person income to boot, you know, seriously, yeah, yeah, impressive, Man, the, the, the male witch business is booming. I do kind of love that he had the house you'd expect. I'm like, I expected nothing. I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh a dude God. who's obsessed with the things this guy is obsessed with 
I would expect him to have a one bedroom apartment with too many cats. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what right. I'd expect. Yeah. Not not this almost uh, almost semi mansion in the music. <laughs> I also wonder, like, again, I know I made a comment about it, but like the doubling down on the nightmare and Elm Street imagery, it, it makes me think that like this is that trying to appeal to the things people are worried about without actually understanding it. I think this is our first real glimpse at that like Mm -hmm. you couldn't even make two horror references let alone a single one that actually has a witch in it right right nightmare on elm street has nothing to do with with witches yeah or, or warlocks but there's the reference and he uses that twice mm-hmm. and it's like okay but you could have just said you'd expect freddy to open the door and i would have known your what you're referencing yeah. So Freddie was in a school for most of the time. Like, there's all sorts of problems with his horror understanding of horror mythology. We're just on the cusp of Harry Potter, too. It would have been interesting if he would have like written this song just five years later. You know, oh, you wonder yeah. what he would what he would have said with the sort of cultural fascination of of witches in that like in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So then he says the next our next stanza. His house was filled, his being the witch, his house was filled with every occultic symbol you could fathom, hanging pentagons and horoscope signs, a Ouija board and Dungeons and Dragons game set on the table, a crystal ball with an incandescent shine. Then graciously, he handed me some steaming herbal tea. Its presence caused my memory to jog. I thought of every horror flick I had seen when I was a kid, and I thought, man, you drink this stuff. Next day, you're going to be a frog. Ribbit, ribbit. We, we pan over to an actual frog. And again, as he's describing all of this, just to just to tell you how absolutely literal the video shooting is, we pan over each and every one of these things in mm-hmm. time with his voiceover. Yes. Like yeah. there it, there isn't even like a brief pan over the room to sort of like we get the point. It's like pan zoom smash cut zoom. Yep. You know, and Dick and, and, um, <laughs> Nick loves, Nick loves D and D. Right. Yeah. So what I said was, uh, you know, there's this exercise teachers do sometimes where they like include a teeny little thing in the syllabus that like tells the students like email me when you find this. Right. So this was my proof that you had read. I mean, that you had listened, read, <laughs> watched the music video, uh, to which is invitation. I was like, if he he's going to text me, he's going to say he's going to say something about that. And then you did. And I had my proof. I will say, like, I, before we before we move forward. Sorry. You yeah. said the D&D thing. I was uh, <laughs> freaking out um, because, what? like, he's got it stacked awkwardly in the corner and uh-huh. like next to the Ouija board. And just like, again, because this is my thing, like, I have to say this. First of all. The Ouija board was like specifically meant as like a tool of the occult. Like this is something people don't understand. Ouija board was originally a tool of the occult that Parker Brothers, I think it was like marketed as a game and people freak out about that. And like, okay, cool. If that's something you're worried about, be worried about that. But tarot cards, another thing that people worry their brains about was originally a game that was like turned into stuff by like horror writers and 
like Wicca and, and like the the like pagan boon in the late 80s, it wasn't originally anything connected to the actual specific occult. I will say, though, on the table with the D&D stuff that he has is he has two books, which mm. if you're a D&D person like I am, Teddy can actually see my D&D shelf. You need at least a half dozen books. If you're going to properly be playing D&D. He had an incomplete polyhedral set. There are seven die in the polyhedral set. He did not have a complete set. Uh, and uh, the one thing I'll give him to his credit uh-huh. is when this video came out, what did you say, 93, right? Yeah, 93. 93. He was at the very least playing with second edition, which had just come out two years prior. So at the very least, he was playing with the most recent set. I'll give him that. <laughs> <laughs> I am glad to hear that he was that there was some accuracy in that representation. That there's of, a lot of inaccuracy, but I'll give him that one piece of accuracy. Yes, yes, of course. And as far as the the tarot card, all of that stuff that you were referencing, I feel in those moments you're starting to fall into that trap of like rationalizing with like the complete <laughs> irrational, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't really matter not to dismiss you, dude, but like it doesn't really matter, you know? Well, okay, so I agree with you. Yes, it doesn't it's really real matter. to them. Yeah. Well, but but and this is this is precisely sort of the more serious version of my point, and you're making it very well for me here. Like, there's just this hodgepodge of spooky stuff that they've packed into this dude's house there is right. like <laughs> listeners i shit you not there is just like spencer's gift and hot early hot topic stuff all over this house <laughs> like there's and like okay do you remember that no sex I don't, toys though. no no sex toys no okay teddy won't remember this because teddy doesn't like fun but those of you who have ever watched the office there's an episode of The Office where Dwight wants to buy a pewter wizard figurine and they pretty woman him because he gets rejected from the, the store in the mall. That exact wizard figurine is standing on this man's table next to a crystal ball that was sold at Hot Top. It's just hilarious to me. And I and again, I say all of this to say there's just this. Well, I'll use an appropriately Italian word to describe this is just a mescalans <laughs> of Love occult it. stuff thrown together that like it doesn't matter if there's any sense of consistency. It doesn't matter if there's any sense of reality. Mm-hmm. This is not meant to represent a reality. It's meant to literally represent a fantasy. And that's such a weird very specifically christian subculture move where we need to very literally represent something made up perfectly said perfectly said absolutely Uh, to say uh, use a phrase that my pastor would sometimes say we could stop right there (laughs) (laughs) god that's definitely like an evangelical pastor thing so stop right here stop right there next stanza yeah this one's rough by the way warning everybody Mm. Then he led me to a high-backed chair as he meticulously began to unfold his scenario with evil patience. I was given a giant leather-bound book jammed with newspaper clippings, thus the reason for this witch's invitation. 
With eagerness, he pointed to each article with pride. He said, I healed this woman through a Babylonian chant. You see this man, I cured him while performing druid worship. I was paid to curse this man with AIDS by his aunt. Jesus. Oh. Yikes. So he takes out this big binder, basically, with newspaper clippings announcing major events, situations, whatever. That he hands he is, him his CV. Essentially, his resume, yeah. <laughs> he hands um, him his resume. With no doubt, um, with no doubt, some some holes and, and mysterious uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> claims. Um, so what's interesting is there's like this odd collection of like good and bad things. So I guess the point mm-hmm. is just to confirm his not even just pure evilness, but just his power in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he cures someone. He also curses someone with AIDS, for God's sakes. Um Well, I think it's really indicative of like that model that I remember being very familiar with, which is like good things can come from nefarious powers. Mm -hmm. That's why we need to be all the more on guard. Right. It's like, oh, it's just like the the Dungeons and Dragons thing. It's like, oh, this is just a game. It's fun. I bond with people. Well, you know who else bonded with people? Satan. Mm -hmm. It's always that like, about lurking behind anything good or bad, you could yeah. be dealing with the devil uh, in a very negative way. Yep. Well said. Good, bad or neutral. You know, like, yeah. oh, it's just kind of a, a you think this is just sort of a fun thing. We'll wait till you find out what yeah. it really is. Yeah. Uh, we're going to yeah. see where that leads us to in a second. But I want to before we speed past, there's two things. One I'm going to be silly and I'm going to be an English teacher about it. But with eagerness, he pointed with pride. That's bothersome. That is so like you are you are redundantly repeating yourself extraneously, sir. The other thing which is much less funny is not that this was good when he said it, but saying that he cursed someone with AIDS because of his aunt it wasn't good when he said it but definitely in a westboro baptist informed present Mm. like the idea that christians are the ones that have said aids was a curse from god right so often i know I, I always cringe at that at that line like oh my god you could have chosen and you could have done anything there and you really just went for that well, I'm like, we've been dealing with the occult. Why are we like, I know why I know why. But like, why are we throwing in this like, like queer bashing? Yeah, like I know why we're throwing it in because it's it's all conflated. The demonic, the occult, the queer, like that's all just the evil thing. This guy is just the enemy. I mean, honestly, the anti-Semitism, too. He's just the enemy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to a a sort of more reasonable mind, I think these things seem really disconnected. But at the time in the church, it was like spiritual darkness was defined by or I'm sorry, like spiritual, spiritually dark beings, demons, whatever they were responsible for and celebrating and upholding all of these like secular advancements right in the culture that was their doing that was they were participating in that they were gloating about it. So the two are actually completely fused. In, and you can in see that ideology. in sort of the extent, we'll call it the uh, uh, 
Carmen cinematic universe here in Satan Bite the Dust. He's talking about running the different members of Satan's posse out, and it's the spirit of alcoholism. Mm. It's the spirit of infliction and infirmity and the spirit of uh, what was the other one? Fake religions, which that was a very racist and problematic moment there. But but uh, we'll leave that aside. But like in that extended mythology, you see that coming to play. Yeah. So uh, what's our what is uh, what does Isaac do next? On and on, page after page, delightfully, he flaunted each incident for an hour without a breath. He said, do you realize through my understanding of the dark regions that I can make you rich or even curse someone to death? I sat literally intimidated by his immensity and demon power while his face shone with a satanic, arrogant bliss. Then placing his hands on the arms of my chair and leaning into my face, he said, what can your God do to compete with this? So we dropped all pretense here. Right. There's just a like, I have made a bargain with the dark and I can do good. I can do evil. What do you got? <laughs> right. You know, right. Um, it's a legitimate test. Uh, you know, he calls it out like in the next uh, paragraph that this is like this biblical challenge but again i, I kind of want to just bring it back to like what world is this that people do this kind of thing like i don't know <laughs> i've i've heard and i don't know if you've seen anything to this effect but um when i was like doing just some brief reading supposedly this story of this of this song this spoken word piece uh, it comes from an actual experience someone that he knew had. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Supposedly, there was this uh, pastor at Oral Roberts University who uh, um, had Carmen as a guest, and they were talking after, and like he told Carmen about this whole experience, and Carmen was like, "Can I use this for a song?" and he was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so humble, you know, that kind of thing. And so supposedly it's real. Supposedly this person's name was actually Isaac. And supposedly Isaac was the first person to earn a bachelor's degree in the occult and magic. What? From Berkeley, <laughs> which like Berkeley, again, is another trigger for conservative Christians. It's left coast, yeah. you know, hippie lefties kind of thing. So he was a religion major who wrote his thesis on the occult, right? Probably, or an English major who studied certain. Okay, whatever. Right, and again, this guy was the the story that I heard from this person who supposedly had the you know we can link the interview in the show notes. Supposedly, it was the, he was out proselytizing on the streets of Berkeley. This guy walked up and said, "Hey, I went to Berkeley. I have a degree in." occult and magic why don't we compare christianity to this to to wicca from an academic perspective i look at that and i go i could see that person being an eager you know soon after graduation person going well i'm going to show off my knowledge and actually have a conversation and try to change this person's mind who's annoying everyone in berkeley (laughs) right sure yeah and then this sort of spirals out of control to be a competition between God and the devil, which is really interesting. The weight, I don't want to take up all the air, sorry, but like really interesting. The idea that like this interaction between people gets blown up into this cosmic battle between the ultimate good and the ultimate evil. 
I was interested in that too, you know, because at first it seems like the goal is for Carmen to point out here's why, you know, this, all this stuff is evil. Right. But then it quickly turns into the scene of the guy leaning his hands on the chair, leaning into, you know, then looking into his face and saying, what can your God do to compete with this? And that's really like, I think we're heading now towards the climax, Mm -hmm. you know, and clearly what the most important part is, which is that this isn't just about evil. It's about like good versus evil and putting God into some sort of weird competition with this evil dark undefined forces force mm-hmm. forces and and that's such a familiar narrative to us too right mm-hmm. the, it's not just spiritual darkness it's spiritual warfare yes i remember being told there's just a constant battle going on around you all the time as a conflict averse person i can't tell you how anxiety producing that is for me but you know they're just there's just a constant fight going on between the demons and the i don't know I mean, I would argue that's probably why, you know, not to do armchair psychology, but that's probably why you're so conflict diverse. I feel the same way. I can't stand any sort of like conflict. And I I think that like layered in that is just we were sold that narrative of there's always someone trying to prowl around like a roaring lion, you know, and all that. Well, that's a whole other episode, but yeah. yeah. All right. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to continue reading the next one. I'm going to go back to the Carmen impression for this because I find this, unfortunately, one of the funniest stanzas because of our alternate universe. Okay. Oh, okay. Got it. He knew then how Moses felt when his rod turned to a serpent and the three Egyptian magicians did the same. It's as if you're sitting there in that stunned moment while your faith gets violated and all you feel is weak powerless and lame desperately prayed saying jesus give me wisdom i don't want to put you through some foolish test (laughs) then a shaft of light shot through my soul igniting my eyes with fire god stood me up and i threw the book back in his chest this is so sexual I feel like, though, it keeps going. I think I have a weird space there in the lyrics. Can you just finish it? Can you oh, just yeah. Finish? You want me to read the next part? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I said, Isaac, I'll not compare God's miracles versus Satan's. The issue is not God's kingdom and Satan's lair. The real comparison is the condition of your soul and the condition of mine. And you, puppet of the devil, that I will compare. I said, my friend, one day they're coming for you. The soft associates in your incantations, the friendly demons you think you now control. The time will come when you'll be lying in your bed, wheezing like a dying animal, and those spirits lay claim to the rights they own to your soul. That just needs a pause, my man. The lying in bed like a dying animal is really like when Carmen tells you to go get fucked, it's for real. You know, those things always remind me. They they bring me back to this thing I forget and I shouldn't forget, but that I forget about Christians or at least Christians of the time and the ones that I experience. Yeah. The gloating and happiness of the thought of other human beings immensely suffering for all eternity. 
Like we don't talk about that mm. enough. You know, I, the fact that even as a kid and I was such a kind, gentle kid, but even the fact that that would be so powerful to me, right? That there would be justice, that there mm-hmm. would be like, you know, someone that there's going to be someone lying in bed, wheezing like a dying animal, that that is comforting and powerful and gives you goosebumps. This is really weird. Yeah. And, and I, I can hear the pushback. Like I, I hear it in, in so many familiar voices. Like, what no, is we it? don't, we don't like, feel happy about that we're sad that other people are gonna go to hell and it's like i mean it kind of feels bullshit it really does it's not so much that like i think people enjoy that that specific knowledge but there's a sort of connection to uh joy and justice like i've had people tell me fairly recently like when i say i don't really like i don't believe in hell anymore because it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels. And I'm not going to do, you know, apologetics from my per- perspective on hell here. But like the rebuttal I get often is you don't believe in justice. Right, right. And it's like, oh, right. so the only way you can imagine something just happening to wrongdoers is if they suffer. If they have that, to use a very theological heavy phrase, eternal conscious torment of hell. Mm-hmm. And that's really what this is, is um, reveling in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, of course, also dismissing. I mean, putting aside the fact that so we're talking about justice, we're talking about evil doing for in a lot of the Christian narrative too. the justice that needs to be done is for the sin of simply not believing, too. So I think we should like keep that in mind. We're not just talking about like, think of the worst human being who has ever lived and caused did so much. E- we're not talking about like even that kind of justice. We're talking right. about just like, your aunt who doesn't buy in, you know, like, so it's just like, um, we can say this person has done horrible things. Isaac has done horrible things, but he's also done good things. Right. Like there's this weird, like he did good things, but for the wrong, like there's that narrative, right. Did the Mm -hmm. right things, but for the wrong, under the wrong banner. Yeah. You know, which, you know, Christians love to, to tote around that. Like you have to do things in the name of Jesus or else you don't go to heaven. And they also like to use C.S. Lewis. I just uh, this is a random throw in. But like in the Narnia Chronicles, at the end of it, there's somebody who did good things and he gets to go to heaven, even though he didn't know Aslan's name because he did the things Aslan would like. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not citing uh, Lewis as scripture. I just know people who do. And yeah. there's yeah. like this really problematic perspective in that. But speaking of reveling in people's demise, would you like to continue? Yeah. So he says. Um, so he's he's lying in bed, wheezing, wheezing like a dying animal, right? So mm-hmm. then the room will grow dark and the most hideous evil faces you have ever seen will come flaming out of the floor with a yell. The vile informants that promise reincarnation will claw your spirit and victoriously drag your soul to hell. And then I grabbed the book and said, in that moment, which mantra, which incarnation are you going to chant to tell them to leave you alone? I said, my friend, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt what I would say. Could you do the honors? I am bought with the blood of Jesus. Let me go. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It takes a special level of commitment to have just like I, I can hear 
every inflection in his yes, voice. Yes, I catch myself doing it too. I was actually thinking that I was like, I am not going to be able to 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 live up to Nick's accent, but goddamn, I know every tone switch. I know every every, every breath and every pause because I've because listened it was, to this so many times. Because, yeah, because we listened to it so many times, and it was so important and so like, and I think that's the thing to take away from this this writing is i'm very sorry to say this if you think differently than me people who are listening uh, i'm sure this is not the most offensive thing i've said this entire episode if you're bothered by this but this isn't good writing yeah this is very poorly written on a number of levels but i will tell you what that man put on one hell of a performance mm-hmm it is so powerful. And that's really what is being sold here. When he has this moment where he asks Isaac what he's going to say to save him from the demons dragging him to hell. I remember this moment being so triumphant and convincing and a certain like empowering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a kid being so empowered by this that like like I mean, there's a there's like a, a little, you know, hallelujah chorus style thing happening like a in the background the it all like raises up out of low and minor keys like yeah all right and then it closes i said isaac so this is now carmen speaking i said isaac when you tossed that book in my lap you gloated with a sinister victory you rejoiced when you saw your name in black and white now i rejoice but not that your council of demons are subject to jesus but that my name is written in the lamb's book of life Then Isaac jumped up from his chair and screamed, you must leave now. I said, I will, but one last obligation. Next time, think twice before you rumble with a man of God. And by the way, thanks for your, uh, witch's invitation. Uh, Again, it's rumble with a man of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, we had to get the rule of threes. He got the rule of threes. Third title drop. Yep. 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 I love that this guy is like, I gave someone AIDS and I kill people and I heal people. But this Christian's little lecture in my own home, that's what's really going to get me my boot, me and my boot shaken. Like, what in the world? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a wuss. <laughs> <laughs> and like, one thing we, we haven't really talked about this at all, um, but like Isaac's appearance up to this yeah. point, he's yeah. this like Vincent Price looking motherfucker, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he's he looks like he's out of one of those old school like horror things. Like if you've ever watched, there's a really great video somewhere of, of Vincent Price reading uh, something Edgar Allan Poe wrote. I can't remember if it's The Raven or uh, The Telltale Heart. And he's in this like macabre dark room and he's got that like slicked back hair and the like mm. little bit of facial just classic that's sort of what this guy looks like he's definitely like party city version vincent price totally totally uh, yeah the, the demons are party city demons by the way they are exactly party city <laughs> plastic skeletons that they like cgi'd green over Yes, the the one that um the one that makes uh the future you know future allegedly wheezing future Isaac. Isaac right that's a green skeleton that like is glowing mm-hmm. 
and then hovers over the bed and the whole whole bed goes up in flames. Right. And he gets sucked through the mattress. And I'm like, that's a little bit too soft. It's really going to give your bag no support, Isaac. I think that might <laughs> that's really what's going on here. She just need a decent mattress. That's right. That's right. Couple, this is your plug to be sponsors if you'd like. <laughs> I was just about to say where Wayfair sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like and, and, and I bring up I bring up Isaac's uh, uh, appearance here because at this point, he's like the actor that plays him does a really good job of following along with turning into this like sniveling little like gremlin style. Right. All the sheen is taken out of him. But I just I'm really baffled by you said that change in him which is so sudden so apparent it doesn't even like skip you know like it doesn't it doesn't progressively get more afraid he just on a dime turns you must get out because carmen is doing the thing that he essentially was the whole point of him coming to the house right so this guy is an idiot yeah like (laughs) But, you know, in some ways, it's also what made the, you know, because on one hand, I would say this song is really powerful. But I would also say that on one hand, on another hand, it was also like very, very comforting in the sense that it made you feel, at least for me anyway, as a kid, it made me feel very in control in a world Mm. that was uncontrollable. It made me feel that despite all the worries and anxieties that I that I had, that there was this force within me and through me. That was bigger than it all. And this song's kind of cool because it doesn't even really seem like spiritual warfare is all that hard. <laughs> like, well, you got to do is believe. Have a good monologue. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like we could go on forever about this, but it made this spiritual warfare thing seem accessible. And yeah, I was terrified by it, but I was terrified by the other things mm-hmm. and not and, and not by you know, Carmen, not by the things I'm terrified by now. right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's comforting. It's like on one hand, it brings to your mind, you know, especially when we we were, you know, kids and teens at the time, it brings to your mind that there's all this spiritual warfare and oh my God, it's so scary. So that part's the scary part. But then it's also comforting in the sense of all it takes is all you have to say is I'm bought by the blood of Jesus. Let me go. Right. I can sleep tonight. You know, my bed's not burning up in flames. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that's that I think is is one of the major through lines, like we said, in the Carmen mythos, right? Satan bite the dust is I am empowered. You're going to die, you know, Uh, uh, no monsters. That song I referenced at the beginning, like that entire thing is about being in afraid to go to bed at night because there's a monster around. But you just have to say, if I remember the lines correctly, it's. I'm protected by the Lord of hosts and I'm a temple of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. And that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, and you and you have victory. The heart of a champion is about like you, uh, you quote unquote, get your strength from Jesus and you can punch Satan until he leaves you alone. It's actually kind of brilliant. It's like gives you a problem that they're telling you you need to be terrified of and then sell you the solution. It's almost like a wellness industry thing, too. Ooh, you know, like yeah. I feel like this is a thing that like a lot of systems institutions do. They create a problem and then propose to you or, or then sell you like, oh, we have the answer to said mm-hmm. problem. But it doesn't really get at like, but is the problem real? You know, like, <laughs> is yeah. well, and again, that that 
jumps back to my jokes about Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like I have this very vivid memory, little bit of complicated just because I've said my backstory is being homeschooled in kindergarten and first grade. I went to a private school and because it was far away, I got busted. So that's literally like kindergarten, first grade. Nick, I remember sitting next to a kid who had went to another school and he had uh, a binder full of Magic the Gathering cards. Mm. Now, anybody who knows me know that I, knows that I'm also a sucker for Magic the Gathering now. But I remember being terrified that something was going to leap out of this binder and latch on to me because this was magic. This was the occult. This was demonic. And I'm in kindergarten worrying about being possessed or oppressed by demons. Yep. And it was a stupid card game. Mine similar. My, I feel like I had very similar situation with Harry Potter in the way mm-hmm. that I mean it was like a drug. I feel like I gave it up multiple times before it finally stopped. like you know it was just like I, I can think of there were like two different seasons of time years apart where I like started it super like really really enjoyed it and then decided I have to give this up because it's mm-hmm. too scary it's too risky. Then a, a year or two would pass and then I would tr- do it again because I was always attracted to it. See, you know. And the same thing would happen. And it's now you look back and you're like, oh, my God, what a waste of what a waste of concern. Right. I had a uh, when I was a kid, I just started to get into Pokemon a little bit. And one of my friends, yeah, yeah, one of my friend's dads uh, picked me up to drive me over to his house. And he said, listen, we've had a talk, uh, his mother and I and him. And we have all three of us decided that you shouldn't bring Pokemon cards any over anymore. Because it was so funny. Okay, so you had a talk with your kid and reasoned him. And okay, fine, sure. Yeah, it's so weird that we worried about all these things, and it just there's so many other things you could worry about. You know, you could worry well, and we didn't (laughs) worry well as as kids. I love the idea of worrying productively. Like I feel like that's very much my brand. You know, like. Let is let's work. We're going we're gonna to worry, but let's do it efficiently and let's do it productively. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that we, you know, just for this, you tell our listeners, we have jumped around a lot in terms of like different, you know, different sort of examples of spiritual darkness. But in some ways, I think it's just modeling what we experienced, which was that on one hand, this was very specific. But then on the other hand, it like it also meant like so many different things you yeah. know and the narrative was changing constantly so one day you know you could they, they just kind of collectively decided that what the new evil thing was yeah. and it's what carmen's you know tapping into perfectly here when you were talking about the weird montage right of all these sort of disembodied things that are like loosely connected in the genre of what like spiritual icon i don't i don't even know yeah um, but they don't have any real sophisticated or nuanced connection. That really tracks with like my time in the Christian art scene. And by that, I mean, like, you know, being a part of like art groups when I was in Christian college or teaching at a Bible college for a brief stint, like all the kids, myself included, who loved Christian art had this very firm belief that art necessarily required a moral. Yeah. Right. So you read a lot. Carmen stuff is easy to get the moral out of. There doesn't Mm -hmm. need to be layers because the message is very clear. And 
there's this connected to it that idea the moral is the idea of the mirror right what art you take in is the performance you will give in your life yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of the arguments behind uh uh, being afraid of harry potter right Mm -hmm. if people watch witches they'll be want to be a witch yeah it's it's a lot of the stuff around the panic over queer stuff now queer Mm -hmm. representation now oh if i see a queer couple or a person acting that way then my kids will want to be that and it's like okay but you didn't have that logic when i watched a hundred thousand straight disney princesses and princes you know like you weren't afraid of that getting picked up and it's 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 a very inconsistent and unsustainable view of art but it is very much a current in christian views on art mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't entirely miss the point. I mean, I think we yeah. of all people would say media constructs our realities. For sure. You know? So, yeah, there is a chance that seeing a queer romance is going to awaken queer desire. Um, so, like you said, it's not so much will it happen, but what is why can't it happen or why do we believe it's it's bad for it to happen? You know, it's more of those questions in some ways. Yeah. And, and I might be I might be overly splitting hairs in the graduate student way. But like, I look at that as not so much that like it encourages a particular kind of behavior, but it opens it as a possibility, as an allowable thing. It's like, oh, this is something that is allowable or acceptable or normal. You know, I remember being a kid and being afraid of the word normalization, right? This This is just normalize it. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I remember that word. Yeah. Yeah. So, from start to finish, you know, we get we get a lot of absurd imagery. We get the weird, we get the most predictable tropes. We get horrible costumes. It's just kind of ridiculous. And it's it's Carmen's whole brand. We have, uh, you know, four to five minutes of these highly emotional songs featuring people in literal demon costumes. It seems that Carmen always ran the risk. It was always a risk. He always ran the risk of people saying this is too cheesy. The lyrics are too over top. The music's too, too absurd. But it didn't happen. Or if it did, the flaws were read as, you know, something that was kind of completely excusable, quirky, admirable, maybe even charming. I guess my takeaway here is that his absurdity was sort of his success. If only we could all be so lucky, right? Seems like uh, Carmen rolled natural 20s on all of his charisma roll, charisma checks. (laughs) So true. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks so much for joining today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming episode releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on sites like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Make sure to search for us and chat with us in those places. Oh, and one last thing. We'd be so grateful if you rated the podcast. It'll keep us visible and ensure that others hear about it. Thanks again for joining us on this journey of 